The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. Welcome to In Discussion in this three-part series with Daniel Brinkley, the New York Times best-selling author of Saved by the Light and At Peace in the Light. His latest literary classic, co-authored with his wife, Catherine Brinkley, is entitled The Secrets of the Light, Lessons from Heaven. And his first bestseller, Saved by the Light, spent 26 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and was made into a television motion picture by the Fox Network and has been seen by tens of millions of people in over 30 countries since 1995. And to this day, it remains the highest-rated made-for-television movie in Fox's history. After being struck in the side of the head by a bolt of lightning in 1975, at the age of 25, he found himself travelling down a tunnel and into a brilliant light. There, he witnessed a panoramic review of his entire life on Earth. And afterwards, he was taken to a luminous crystal city. And there, within a hall of knowledge... Thirteen beings of light infused Danyan's consciousness with visions of the world to come and charged him with his spiritual mission of establishing healing centers on the earth. Then, against his will, twenty-eight minutes later, he was returned to his lifeless body. Since that faithful evening in 1975, he's been on an incomparable spiritual odyssey, and today... He's revered as one of the greatest orators of our time, offering a message of great hope and courage to audiences worldwide. He later became a hospice and nursing home volunteer in 1978. And in the past 30 years of volunteer service, he's been at the bedside of over 350 people at their moment of death, and with more than 1,800 people during their final days accruing more than 26,000 hours of service at the bedside. In 1997, Danyan co-founded the Twilight Brigade, and today is one of our nation's largest non-profit organizations, dedicated to the training of volunteers who serve as transition technicians at the bedside of our country's priceless and beloved American war veterans. His wife, Catherine, works at his side as president of the organization. And since its inception, the Twilight Brigade has recruited nearly 6,000 volunteers who have accrued more than 250,000 reported hours at the bedside. With more than 76 million baby boomers now confronting the mortality of family members and friends, many of whom are veterans, this program is providing a much-needed link to assure quality in end-of-life care. Having honorably served in the Marine Corps, Brinkley's profound commitment to death with dignity has inspired him to successfully devote his life to the creation of a reality where no veteran need die alone. Being recognized as a true American hero on behalf of the veterans, in 2007 Danyan was awarded the President's Lifetime Achievement Award for Outstanding Volunteer Service. Daniel Brinkley joins me on In Discussion. 
Welcome to In Discussion, and it's a great pleasure today to have Daniel Brinkley returning back in the series of programs. Daniel, welcome to you. Ah, oh, thank you, David. It's good to be back. It was such a wonderful program yesterday, Daniel. I was very inspired and privileged. We reach 1975, I believe. You have now left the services. And in 1975, you have an episode in your life that was to change your life forever. Could you define that for me? Well, it was a Wednesday afternoon in 1975. I had been working. I had been in Central America doing my standard intelligence gathering skills for a project that the government or certain agencies of the government were planning on doing. And I think what was in the spiritual sense of it, David, I was a little let down because I was beginning to learn to realize that many of the things that I had always trusted and believed were not as trustable and not as believable and that I was reduced to an enemy that were, were farmers. When I came back, I was a little frustrated and so... I came home and I had my uh, girlfriend and we were getting ready to have dinner and I decided I needed to call a friend of mine because I always took my mind off my life by restoring old cars. And I had a 39 LaSalle that I had bought and bringing it out, I'd broken the door on the lady's garage and I hired a carpenter who was a friend of mine to fix it. And I was going to call him to ask him would he get that done. It was a Wednesday afternoon around 7 o'clock. I got on the phone, and I was sitting with the phone propped up on my knee on the edge of the bed. And I heard, this, I heard the sound of thunder in the background, and I said, listen, I need to get off the phone. And he, he said, what's the matter, tough guy? You afraid of a little lightning? And I can remember thinking, Mother always said never talk on the phone doing lightning. Lightning hit the phone line. It came down the phone line. It went into the side of my head just above my ear. It went down my spine. It welded the nails of the heels of my shoes to the floor. It throws me in the air. It suspends me in the air, slams me back down on the bed. I am burning, and I'm on fire. It's like consuming battery acid. And what was amazing to me about it was I had never known that kind of pain I'd never felt that kind of pain, and I never knew what it was like to be bathed in acid. And there became a point where the pain was so great, and the ball of fire that came through the room during the lightning strike had burnt my eyes so bad I couldn't see where I was. I couldn't move. And for the first time, even in all that pain, I was struck with fear. I lifted out of my body. And when I lifted out of my body... This is something, first, I had no ability to conceive of. I had no conscious background in understanding this. Dr. Raymond Moody had not written his landmark book, uh, Life After Life, which means the term near-death experience did not exist. So I was having this experience before it was cognitively known as it is today. I had no relationship, and yet I was completely separated. And I was watching what was going on. The thing that I noticed the most, it was like watching a television show or like watching your favorite television show where you get involved in it, but yet you're still 
separated from it. And I became an observer in what was becoming now a near-death experience. The thing that amazed me the most at that moment was that I could see through everything. It had shape and form, but it produced an energy field. And my girlfriend working on me, I could see through her. She came down the hall, and she was pounding on my chest and working on me. The guy on the other end of the phone was a corpsman in the Navy, and he came straight over because he heard the explosion. And the next thing that occurred was I could see the two of them, and they were energetic. They were made of light, and they were made of a series of colors that I have never seen those colors here. But red, blue, green, yellow, orange, uh, indigo, and violet in shades of pastels that were far more radiant and more beautiful than I've ever seen them. And their energies would combine and mix. And as I watched this, to my left was a plant, this plant that she liked called a Thai plant. And it had these large leaves, and I never particularly was interested in any of that. Like uh, yesterday when we talked about communing with nature, the only nature, the only way I thought about communing with nature was the kind of camouflage I would use based on what it was I was doing in the area that I was and how I blended in. But I could tell that this plant was worried about them and me. It was sensing the crisis. And this was really, truly amazing to me, David, because I was a redneck operative. I thought just in those mindsets, I had no, like we talked yesterday, I had no spiritual or religious concept whatsoever, and yet this was happening to me. To realize that everything is conscious, if it breathes like plants breathe, everything has a consciousness to it. And I could see through them. And they were more beautiful than they'd ever appeared physically because of the interaction of the energy. And when the, the Tommy sent Sandy next door to call the paramedics, and she called the paramedics, and when they came, I could see their energy bodies. They load me in an ambulance, and I was in the ambulance. I just kind of went along with where my body went. And I can remember the sounds, and I was more curious because I'd never been in an ambulance before. And I was more curious about what was inside of an ambulance than I was about myself or any of that other stuff. And I was looking at all the tubes and the pipes and the air and the oxygen mask, and this guy was working on me, and he had a headset on. And he, I guess he was communicating with the, the doctor, and then he said, he's gone, he's gone. And I thought to myself, gone where? And then I heard a series of chimes, these tones, and I could feel the world that I was in opening. And I looked over my left shoulder and upward, and I could see this tunnel forming. And it was moving whether I was moving or not. And then it was various colors, but it was subdued colors. And I began to be pulled down this tunnel and into this place of light. Keeping in mind, David, I had never, ever heard of this. Never. And I had no relationship. There was no literature. I could not have come across it subconsciously. I'd never read anything. And yet it was, it was occurring. It was the most real event that I'd ever, ever experienced. 
And by the time I was 25 years old, I promise you, I had experienced some real events. Did you at that point place it into any sort of context with your operations while you were in the services, or was Nothing. there just no comparison at all? I had no earthly idea. I'm a quite a good observer, but I had absolutely no earthly idea what this was. And as far as being dead, quote-unquote, everybody has to realize you will not realize that you're dead for a while. <laughs> you know, if you think that as soon as you breathe your last breath, you think that you're, you think that you're going to know you're dead, you're going to be more alive then than you've ever been alive here. Were you, in a way, now you're in this situation, offered a choice point? Could you resonate with this consciousness and either decide to stay in a reality that you had been offered or to return back to that body? No. There was never any choice. I mean, no one, I was never given a choice. I, that, a lot of people say in these experiences they were given a choice. Well, I wasn't given one. I was in this experience, and I come into this blue-gray, silvery beautiful place it looked like a blue mist like uh, satin and shimmery i remember trying to get my bearings because most of the time in the world i'd come from even if you didn't know where you were you tried to get your bearings i was trying to get my bearings and i happened to look down at my right hand first it wasn't there and then it just formed in the mist and i could see my right hand and being obsessive compulsive I always tried to figure out why did I look at my right hand as opposed to my left hand since I'm left-handed. Well, these are the kind of things I think, David. You know, And I look around and I remember a, a movement in the mist and I took my hand, my mind and our eyes off of my right hand and I watched it dissolve back into the mist. And I looked and this being came to me. This being brought a sense of safety a sense that I was not alone and this was a safe place. And I always related to the feeling like your grandfather. You know, it's like when your grandfather comes or you hurt yourself and, and your grandfather comes and he's that wise, kind, caring, loving person. I never knew any either of my grandfathers, but I can sense that that's the feeling that a person could relate it to. And it was safe. And at that moment, I had what I believe still to this day to be the most important event, the panoramic life review. I mean, this is a term I gave it. And I see that it's become a standardized term. It's interesting, Daniel. I can remember talking to Dronvalo Makisadek about astral planning, and frankly, I really didn't have much knowledge of it. But he talked about being accompanied with a being. There's obviously a correlation here that you are accompanied, and that fear diminishes at this stage. Well, I wasn't afraid because wherever it was I was, David, was better than where I left. I could not bear the place I had left. I, the pain was too great. It's like being drowned in acid. And I could see, whereas the place I left, I could not move. The pain was more than a human being could withstand, and I could not see. In this place, I was safe. I was at peace and very comfortable, and I could see clearly. 
it stunned me that not only could I see, but the brightness of this beautiful light did not harm my eyes. I mean, these are the things that I paid attention to. And so as this being moved closer, I began to have a life review. It was like a 360-degree panorama of literally every single event from my birth all the way through my entire life, every single event. And what is incredible for everyone who is listening, you have never missed a single event that has happened in your life. You have recorded everything that's going on around you. You may not think you paid attention to it because you were focused in a psychological and physiological nature that you sociologically identified like I as Daniel. But trust me, you saw it all. You missed nothing. And as you watch this life pass before you, you also view it from a second-person point of view, as if you were your very best friend. And you're watching the choices that you made. When Catherine and I wrote The Secrets of the Light, and when we put in there, we put a fourth, what we call the fourfold path. Everything is about love. Everything is about what you believe about your love. And then everything is about the choices you make. And then prayer is defined as willful conscious intent as the way to move through multiple dimensions to achieve your goal. And I believe after three of these experiences and 34 years as a hospice volunteer talking to people in transition, that there is no better way to structure a model for people to use in their everyday life than in the secrets of the light. But you watch yourself in this second-person point of view to observe the choices that you made. Not that you made good or bad or right or wrong, but to see how close to the ultimately right choice you were, the possibilities or probable possibilities. And then I literally became every person that I had ever encountered. And I felt the direct results of my interaction between every person that I had ever encountered. And David... I have to tell you, that was not a very pleasant experience because I'd spent most of my life intimidating and threatening and destroying confidence as well as dignity, as well as a lot of things in the lives of people that I had to feel the direct results of that interaction. What was the prime purpose in your mind of that what was it serving you with apart from forgiveness what else was it creating for you I don't think it was forgiveness it was that it's a fair and just universe I reckoned it without any question no one gets away with anything no one you will be and feel the direct results based on your intention not what you did, but why you did it. And most of mine was an ego, maniacal driven concept. I was only thinking about me and how I would be recognized or what I thought of myself. Because people have to realize it's not what you do in life, it's why you do it that's going to really matter. But after that, I realized that forgiveness was power. For as long as you are, are focused on anger, and not paying attention to the fact that uh, you are as equally responsible for your actions, for why you do them, the less you pay attention to the art of forgiveness, loving kindness, and uh, support. 
so people have to realize forgiveness is a power. It is an art that enables you to move forward knowing that no one's ever going to get away with it. Like people say, well, Daniel, where do you think, what do you think happened to Hitler? Well, he had to be six million people. He's still probably going through all those lives and everything that his decisions made and affected those people because I not only felt the immediate repercussions of the people I had encountered, but I have felt it like one time removed. Some people that would never see their fathers again or some people who went on to do anger and became like me because they thought it was some way to exert power. So I had to see that. When you look at the three events, it was enough that you had one, but then you had two more. How did your approach to all those human frailties progress? How did you look upon them? Because obviously you're being compounded with this bliss that you found. How did you see these human frailties of anger and fear, despair, denial, codependence? How did that narrative come together for you? Well, all that stuff becomes a complete waste of time. You are a great, powerful, and mighty spiritual being, and you have dignity, direction, and purpose. I humbly ask everybody to look at, remember what I just said, great, powerful, mighty, spiritual being with dignity, direction, and purpose. Look those words up in a dictionary and write them down. Because if you look them up in, you, in a dictionary and you write them down, you will be able to truly define who you are. It's like in Secrets. I mean, in, in our book that Catherine and I wrote, this is about who you are. And without identifying yourself from that concept first, you'll never really ever see who you are. But the grandest part about this was part four, David, because we all hear about judgment and hell and all of that stuff. Well, think of this. I didn't go to hell and I didn't die in three of these adventures. So when you realize that, then almost all you've ever heard about what religion teaches is nonsense. It's just nonsense. But the key is judgment. And this was a startling revelation for me from how I'd always thought of. I thought from the five years old forward I was going to go to hell, so what difference did it make? And I think that's what everybody told me, that I was going to go to hell. But the key is this. It is you who judges you. You know more about you than anybody. And how do you judge yourself? And I will use two terms. First, a German word, God. If God could not come today and God had sent you, in the life you just reviewed, what difference did God make? Or if the divine could not come today and you were representing the divine, in the life you just reviewed, what difference did the divine make? This is something everyone is going to deal with. Everyone. This is the way it works. And people, please trust me. Once you take on this concept and you look at life from the panoramic life review as I'm defining it, you open yourself up to access levels of spiritual consciousness 
and decision-making processes that you would never have conceived of in your ability because we've always begun to depend on being saved. Well, the Panoramic Life Review, David, unequivocally says that's not true. If someone did a study on people who had deep near-death experiences and who had uh, panoramic life reviews, and you ask them if they believe that there is an event that comes that someone died for their sins or that someone can have a bedside salvation, and if they believe that that's true based on the responsibility that the near-death experience shows you, 99% would say absolutely not. We are responsible for our actions. We chose to come, and we were chosen to come. And once you accept that and take that responsibility, which is what the Panoramic Life did for Panoramic Life Review did for me, I took the responsibility. I tried to rectify some of the things I had done, but there were so many of them, I probably still owed some of those debts. But nonetheless, this is the, this is how it works. Fair and just universe. Can I ask you, this is, when we talk about this, we're, we're talking about a psychological death. And I wonder, with my journey, particularly in the first seven months of these programs, I was homeless. And I became extremely ill on my own and possibly went down that road. But my question would be, is in community today, how are people globally going to witness, experience, and come to this point together and individually? Well, I believe that the cataclysms that we're about to face, look at the United States. The United States is about to collapse. We will owe $20 trillion, like we talked yesterday, and the Standard & Poor's rating service said if we didn't straighten it out, this nation would collapse. Now, when you stand on the precipice of utter collapse and the world that we're dealing with at war, if you watch just local news, soon we'll be in Libya. And when you look at that and you look at the, how Europe and the French and, and the British and all these colonialist imperialist societies are now remaking themselves after the last century, they are now in the Ivory Coast, they're now capturing, like in the Ivory Coast, they've captured the guy who lost the election, and the person they're installing spent 10 years cutting off children's hands so they could never take up arms against them. And what is it they're after, oil or diamonds or gold or drugs? I mean, we are about to witness the need to understand our spirituality. I look at the world today, and I have been an advocate in many ways for the Deepwater Horizon disaster where there are thousands of people very ill after the materials that have been sprayed down there and still sprayed there to this day. And I look at people now and I certainly understand the merits of not judging, being completely comfortable with yourself, knowing that you're part of the universe, you are the universe. But when I look at Gnostic values or look at the way that we've been conditioned over these thousands of years some would say that there's a devil there I question that is it not that it's just that human beings particularly today in this extreme predatory greed have 
an evil within themselves. It's not external. It's just what is created internally in these times. It's free will to make a choice because you, in order to enter this plane, in order to be a part of delivering divinity on this earth, if God could not come today and God has sent you, in the life you just reviewed, what difference did God make? Whenever you sidetrack from that for whatever reason you chose to gain, which is ego, then the destruction of a planet or destruction of a people or destruction of any of that or the devil made me do it, this is absolute, utter nonsense. There is no devil. If you think about that as a being, there may be demons, David, because of this this place that I described where people who choose not to go down the light and into the tunnel, you know, that's in the third near-death experience. The first two, I never recognized it, but in the third one, I did. But there is no being. Look how, Look at the devil. The devil has like 20 names, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the devil. You know, it's like he was in the witness protection program. And each each year, you know, we've gotten to the point where we're supposed to be afraid of a little guy with hooved feet, with a tail that has horns and walks around with a pitchfork. Now, from the great Lucifer, the morning star, the the most powerful angel in religious terms in the Bible to be reduced to Pan, which is the which was the Greek and Roman uh, god of fertility, the hoof feet of a goat and the body of a man and played a flute and had little horns and was the part of festivity. In order for the church to have taken pagan rituals and demonized what they thought as gods or the celebration, just like Easter. Here we are at the celebration of Astera, and we have eggs and bunny rabbits uh, representing Palm Sunday when Christ went into Jerusalem for a Passover, and it's celebrated with eggs and dyed chickens and rabbits. This is all uh, the brought in of certain pagan traditions. The egg represents fertility and the universal and the shape of the earth. And rabbits are productive and reproductive and chickens lay eggs, so they are a source of life. And then we have the devil with little hooves. This devil concept was created to, for a person to, t- to disallow themselves from taking responsibility for their actions. The Panoramic Life Review never had the devil. And if anybody was going to hell, if there was a hell, I was your number one candidate. It's interesting looking back at Christ's period. It seems that ever since then, religion has not played a good part. After 325. I won't say that before, uh, because it was never organized. After 100, after uh, Origin, the great writer, when you go through three of these near-death experiences, David, I've read a thousand books. I've read the Bible probably 20 times, different versions of the Bible, and another thousand books that deal with religion and its history. Because I became obsessed with understanding how we all got so crazy. You know, and after three of these, and being at the bedside of more than 2,000 people, 
when they were taking their last breath and being there and asking them questions and looking at what they go through. I'm agreeing with you, but I think after Origen, who who was the last person to be able to write it with reincarnation and so many of the now new age concepts that we accept and use, but the 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 religious part is a private sanctity between a person and their inner divine self. But at the Edict of Nicaea in 325, when the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Church began to absolute crumble, and you know, and it took another 500 years to crumble, you had Justinian and Constantine. There were three two major events. 325, the 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 Nicene Creed, where they brought 1,100 manuscripts together, and the Bishop of Rome and Constantine, Justinian came together and created what we now know to be the, the 76 books of the Catholic Bible and the 66 books of the Christian's Bible, of Christianity's Bible. Then this is where it came. And then the second great point was... In 348, there was another great council that came together. I think it was called the Milan Council. I'm not sure about that one, but I know it was in 348. And after that, organized religion and the absorption and condemnation of pagans began to be the, the moral decay of humanity. Well, and it continued for centuries. And you have individuals like Martin Luther, who came out of the woodwork. What history you have there with these individuals who were absolutely crucified by the church? I mean, look at John Calvin, the same thing. And look at Galileo. Look at what it's done to them. And the, the, Do you realize that, the, no offense to Catholics, I mean, God bless you, but do you realize that the Catholic Church who says it's infallible, it wasn't until 1968 that the church said that it was okay to believe that the world wasn't flat. Until 1968, if you said the world wasn't flat, you were excommunicated and eternal and eternally damned. This is the guilt and the fear that people have been placed into for hundreds of years, and it's, and it's become more exaggerated. And today I look at the religious system, and, and I'm not necessarily condemning it, but there are huge problems, and one of the biggest is that fear seems to be the greatest vehicle. Well, it's the driver, David, in everything that we do. Remember, I think one of the greatest gifts being dead has ever given me, and the pain that I have suffered through reduces my fear. I look at things for what it is. And I study it, and I don't let fear. I know what pain is, and I know what death is. So most of the drivers that affect most people don't affect me. I'm not driven by that. I am responsible for this life. I am responsible for bringing as much goodness and as much kindness and as much love and as much hope and as much inspiration as I can possibly put in it. And I, have, I chose a cause, which I hope everybody does. You find something that you get up in the morning that is equal to whatever else you have to do. I have to make a living. I have to go to work. But I chose to be a hospice volunteer. 
This is, again, interesting because I look at my life as being in service. And about three months ago, I met a chap who was interested in the programming, wanted to syndicate it. And he said, essentially, what is your objective? And I said to him, I know that I'm in service for the rest of my life with this work. And his immediate response, which goes to prove the disconnection in the world, was, are you in the financial sector, in that sort of service, or the retail sector? It seems that people still don't understand the true meaning of being in service. Well, you know, David, that has nothing to do with what you're doing. Remember, most people are afraid to de death of death. And most people tell me that they could not uh, understand that I have spent probably 34 years and more than 40,000 hours paying attention to this because it is where I can be of the greatest service. I know what's next. And I know because of the fear and fright and the medical establishment that, uh, and religious perspective, that people are afraid to have closure. They don't know how to sit at the bedside. They don't know how to have a conversation with their departed loved ones. The departing loved one does not know how to have a conversation with them because no one likes to talk about death. They want to talk about the weather. And I think one of the greatest crises that we are facing as human spiritual beings is closure. You come here leaving. If you took your first breath, you will take your last breath. If you celebrate birth, then by avoiding the consciousness that one day you will leave and no one knows anyone's chosen time, by not consciously and spiritually engaging that, creating a pattern of it other than avoidance, you are failing yourself. You're failing your family. You're failing your friends, your neighborhood, and you're failing the world as a whole. So I chose to be of service there. And a lot of people can't understand that, but I don't really care. What you're doing is providing a forum so that people can look at alternative perspectives other than the ones that is being controlled and fed to them in rapid motion. When you watch the delivery of the news, it is not Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is. It's 24-hour, all-day-long, driven consciousness to control you and to feed you bits of information to avoid you from being able to formulate a strategy to better protect yourself. And then you become subject to the rule of what's going on around you. I mean, I really like your show. And the way I hear it, so does a lot of other people. They'll probably quit listening to you after you've had me on. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but you know what, David? This is how I am. I have studied death for 34 years, and I'm 60 years old. And I see it for what it is, and I understand it, and I've been through three of these experiences, brain surgery and open-heart surgery out of five surgeries. I've had three of these experiences. And so I don't have any problems with looking at it, and I've talked to people who've been resuscitated because I've made this my life's work. In your amazing work, how is your approach possibly different to those around you, how do you deal with veterans or people that are in their last moments? You learn to listen. People need to process that they have value. 
that their life was worth living and that they will be remembered. And a lot of times when a person can talk, they're listening to themselves find balance and finding resolution. There is very little conversation I have at the bedside. Like my wife says, I'm quite interesting character. The person that sits at the bedside and the person that most people see and talk to every day are completely different. I listen. And I use triggers to bring people to conversations like, uh, what's your favorite song and why? And I can take a person lying in a bed in more pain than they can imagine and is lost and is frightened and they can go to their favorite song and tell me the greatest love story or when they got off the ship or when they first kissed a girl or their first dance or, you know, so many things. And then from there, I can just ask questions and listen and that somebody really cares. You have just provided me at a profound moment after one and a half years in this programming where I had decided from the very first moment that I entered that studio that I would be a listener, that I would allow the audience to make up their own minds. I do trigger people, and I do have in-depth, well-meaning conversation, but it is about listening. Well, it's providing a forum. You were searching out yesterday as a social historian try to understand my psychological relationship to my father and my families, which was an in-depth profile of helping me understand that my biggest crisis, which I never ever really put the two things together of reading the encyclopedias as a child and listening to fundamentalist nonsense, was the driver that created the personality that did not change until I truly had crossed the threshold into the next world. I never knew that. And after years and years and years of trying to figure it out and think it, I never figured that out until yesterday. I couldn't wait to tell Catherine. Because I understand a lot of stuff, David. I'm, I read newspapers and magazines, and if you ride in a car with me, it's like riding in a Dempsey dumpster because every time we stop, I buy every newspaper. I pick up every free magazine, and I will read them from cover to cover. But I never realized that about myself. So I was really thankful that where you were going as a, as a social historian, that it really helps people because I'm telling the truth. It is definitely a time for truth, and that is something that we're lacking in the world. Uh, George Orwell would be the one to clarify that with his famous quotation. Let me in ask your... you something. What led yeah. you to be homeless? When you said when you began this program you were homeless, I was, you, could have, I, you could have always come and stayed with me. But what led you to be homeless? I lost absolutely everything after a dreadful relationship. And during that time started the programming and found a divine road towards creating these programs, finding myself learning that in order to gain everything you do have to lose everything and I do say that to people and some people look at me as if I'm absolutely crazy but I believe it to be true well I've been there three times I've never been homeless but I've lost everything when you're dead for 28 minutes you're completely paralyzed for six days you're partially paralyzed for seven months and it takes you two years to learn to walk and feed yourself 
And in the course of that first six or seven months, David, I traveled through dimensional reality. Why I'm such an avid studier of theoretical quantum physics and the multi-universe theory, string theory, chaos theory, all these theories, is because I have seen those worlds and those levels of consciousness. I have seen them, traveled in them in the early months after the lightning because all I could do was lie in a bed and not be able to see wearing welder's glasses, and I would all of a sudden be in this dimension. But in that position, there's something... We could talk either in scientific language or, or layman's language about chaos theory, but it also always strikes me that if you have chaos, you are always going to be led into a bliss because there was always a bliss before the chaos occurred. And I suspect this is what we're in now, moving into this next evolutionary period for this planet. Would you, what are your thoughts on that? 100% is like the Maya say. We're in the final nights. This is the, it was March 5th when we moved from, uh, we, we moved in what's called the ninth wave. On, on March 9th, we moved into the ninth wave. And if you look at the Mayan history, uh, how the Mayans structured their calendar, that in the period just before March the 9th was called the sixth night of the galactic cycle. That means all things done not in integrity would collapse. So over a 20-year period, everything in the world from our government to churches and organizations and institutions, our bankers, all of this has collapsed around us because it was not done in integrity. And it will keep dissolving. It will keep dissolving because the Mayans did not study time. They studied the evolution of consciousness. They measured it every 25,920 years. They could calculate 3,225,000 years into the past. And they could build cities based on their astrophysicological concepts of the, of the stars and the heavens. They could estimate when, Zenith, when Venus would be the closest point to the Earth, and they could build a city to celebrate an event that would happen 800 years into the future. So if you look at the Dresden Codex and you look at the Mayans, the, the final saved things, there's one in L.A. that's the better of them at UCLA. But they knew what uh, they, we didn't discover uh, Neptune till 1844. The Mayans knew about the planet and the size of the planet, carved a relief on it in the jungles of Guatemala in 2300 B.C., there's evidence to suggest that the Mayan civilization was extraordinarily gifted, talented, scientifically very progressed. Well, the elite were. It also suggests that they're still here. And some say that they were wiped out as other civilizations. Would you Nonsense. see them as still being here, just in a different reality that we cannot recognize? I mean, the Mayans are there. There's two million of them. I've Mayan elders. But you have to remember, it was before the Gutenberg, until Gutenberg invented the printing press, the, it was a sin to read the Bible. You were not allowed to read what the Bible said. You had to have it interpreted by. But once Johann Gutenberg in, invented the printing press, that, that story was over. Well, you had an elite class, the priest class, 
and I am sure that they kept that knowledge among themselves. And so the worker, the guy who lived on the farm who was working the terraces and raising his kids, he didn't know. How many of us know that most uh, computer, most uh, stock market stuff is done by computers? What you're saying is that the priesthood in these civilizations were the ones who were told to guard the information, and that is clearly evidence with the Dogen civilization in North Africa. The priesthood were very guarded. They were instructed by higher beings to hold on to that information. Now, putting that into context today, it's still the same, is it not? We have a organization behind everything here, behind the government's of the world that are directing this who hold on to this information so that the general public are not aware of it and cannot access it well I, I believe that's still true I think that it's been modified into greed and control as opposed to evolution and and further uh, uh, further evolving of consciousness I mean whenever you gain a secret like being able to I'll take something as simple as what the priest class in Egypt, they could determine when the Nile was going to flood because they had a series of wells, and when those wells began to fill up, they would know that the flooding season would come and they can control planting. The Nile floods twice a year, and the fact that they could predict that, people who had no knowledge of having these wells inside of these temples had no way of knowing it. So that piece of elite piece of information... We have people now who control banking, like the Federal Reserve that you talked of. These people are absolutely controlling us, and they're creating ways based on on fiat currency for us to place a piece of value in a, in a piece of paper with a dead person's picture on it as a way to control us. And then there is the esoteric knowledge. When you look at computers and transistors and and you look at the things fiber optics, all of this appeared in the 40s and the 50s when we had absolutely no precursor knowledge to it. There was no knowledge of it. And then something happened that revolutionized us. And I believe that it, it came in some certain moment. And then we began to manufacture, like what was crystal radios became transistors, and from transistors it became chips. This Did this knowledge. in some way have a connection or in context with the events of 1945 that said to somebody out there that civilization as we know it is now on the edge of extinction, so now we have to provide technology, provide science to well, overcome that? Or someone decided that we could. It could have been 1947 Roswell a spacecraft and back engineering. I don't really know, but I know that when you detonated a nuclear weapon and the last place it was detonated, the only place it was ever detonated twice in history other than for testing becomes the place that when the galactic period began of what's called the ninth wave to the Mayans, which was March 9th this year, that was the day the earthquake and the tsunami created what is now the end product of one-third of Japan that will not be able to be occupied for 10,000 years. That means another cycle has come. 
If you talk to Carl Callerman, of course, the the Mayan calendar expert, he talks about the ninth level and he connects it directly to our scientific or our technological knowledge as being the final level. The paradox in that, though, is that we have a technology such as the Internet that can provide us communication around the world, uh, connect people together, which it's surely doing. But at the same time, the Mayan calendar is in conflict with that, suggesting that it is still the, the last level uh, prior to some sort of evolutionary shift. Yeah, I mean, uh, remember in the Bible it said that uh, there would come a time when when the Antichrist could speak to the whole world at once, and no one could ever possibly figure out how that could possibly This is in the book of Revelations. Well, today, one person can speak to the whole world simultaneously at once in real time. So maybe that prophecy has begun. But I believe the technology is not what is going to be the driver. It's the awareness and the awakening of our spiritual identity. Something that happened to me 35 years ago, that point is the absolute true evolutionary purpose, that you give religion a break, that you take on identities. What we write about in, in what we put up in Kinetics Magazine, Danion.com, and our books. I mean, I am trying to give people a chance to stop. I'll tell you why I got into the Swami business, David. When I had this experience, and there came this guy named Raymond Moody, and people were ridiculing him, and he was just trying to put out evidence of things that he'd come across of these 50 people who had had some form of this experience. I resented the fact that there was so much criticism of these people that I couldn't stand it. If it was me, I knew that there was tens of thousands of other people who had this experience, who had to stuff it, who couldn't talk about it because they would people would think that they were crazy. And but, that is people, that, but is that not indicative of a society that we've lived in for thousands of years where anybody who is leaning towards any esoteric values or scientific knowledge or free energy are automatically suppressed in this world that we live in? Agreed. But uh, the thing that was about me, I started to talk about it and to write to defend those people so that there was someone who would stand up for them that they could talk about it, that they had a forum that they could talk about, and I was defending them. I never knew I was going to become famous. I never knew it. When I wrote Secrets, I mean, I wrote Saved by the Light, I never knew it would be a multi, multi, multi-million seller. I never knew it. And yet it's still selling five or 10,000 books a month worldwide. I never knew all that, David. I knew this. Raymond Moody needed to be have a defender. He had to have someone who would stand there, who wasn't afraid of anybody, who you wouldn't back me down no matter who you were, about that this is the, the books that I write and the things that I lecture about are the basic nomenclature of a spiritual being's reason for living on this earth and the value concepts they can hold on to and the strength that they can know as they face going from this world to the next 
or the confidence that they can draw from when they're losing someone they love. And I stepped up to the plate. And I think because of that, so many people who have had this experience before it had a name and since it had a name have the courage to talk about it. And if you look at today, there are people by the hundreds who've had near-death experiences who talk about it and people who talk about their children having them when kids were repressed. If you look at the work of Melvin Morris, who was a pediatrician who resuscitated over 300 children. And can you imagine what those parents were telling those kids when they said they were talking to Jesus or beings of light and angels? Is because you have to find terminology. And how many of those kids now, they're the number one New York Times bestseller is about a father talking about a three-month, a three-year-old kid having a, a near-death experience. I am proud, David. I am proud that I had a part in the early days of defending this, which is now becoming any people people who now think that you can write a near-death experience off as oxygen brain deprivation or temporal lobe seizure or frontal lobe seizure or aphylactic shock or some term like that. I believe that some of the people who just think they've had near-death experiences are suffering from some of these medical and scientific terms. But I believe as a whole, this is the way we leave this world. And I'm proud to have been a part of that. Daniel Brinkley, it has been a smashing second program. I am so grateful. I'm looking forward to our third. And that will take us nicely into uh, your books, your life today in serving so many people. I do thank you. And David, I do thank you. And whoever this person was that did not want to syndicate you, may he be blessed, but he's a fool. Let us keep moving forward and giving people choices and in the information because in my particular place, everybody comes here going. And I can guarantee you I will win the argument either in this life or in the next life. And may we support people in their beliefs that they are great, powerful, and mighty spiritual beings with dignity, direction, and purpose. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you enjoyed this second program with Daniel Brinkley. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And be blessed. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.